Hello and welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Media and Technical Director here at Bayside. This week, we talk with Pastor Ken, discussing Jude 5 through 16. And we hope that you enjoy our conversation today. All right, welcome back to the podcast. This week with Pastor Ken, we are continuing our study in the book of Jude. We are in verse 5 through 16. Again, there's only one chapter to the book, uh, and some of us have difficulty pulling up. Oh, well, it's, it's Jude. The computer wants me to put in what chapter? Well, there's only one chapter, so just tell your computer chapter one and then go from verses there. This was a very interesting title that you had. You had Egypt, Angels, and Enoch, oh my. Uh, a nice <laughs> little play on the Wizard of Oz there. <laughs> yep. Uh, and so as we begin our discussion this week, I'd like to open with some questions that were sent in from the congregation. Now, for those of you who don't know, there is a link at the bottom of the Sermon Notes tab. And for those of you that don't know, we have an app, Bayside app, where you can connect and do all sorts of interesting things. And one of the things is on Sunday mornings, as you're listening to the sermon, open up the app, click on the Sermon Notes tab, and then at the bottom of that tab, there's some blue text that says, submit a question uh, for discussion. And so here's the question that we received this week. Two questions. Uh, Do all wolves know that they are wolves? So in other words, is it possible for a wolf to even deceive themselves? And two, if so, how do we keep from becoming wolves ourselves? Uh, Good questions. So I think one of the distinguishing uh, truths of or differences between a wolf and one who's not a wolf, uh, to use, you know, some the term the terminology from the sermon on Sunday is um, is unbelief. Um, You know, wolves are not believers. So the question of is it possible for that wolves don't even recognize that they're wolves? um, I think my my answer to that is I don't know. Um, uh, but what I would say is I, I think it's both are possible. I, there are definitely, uh, those, because remember when I, I was using wolves to refer to false teachers. Um, so false teachers, um, you have to remember that, you know, it's not, they're, they're not bad teachers. They're not someone who does like a poor job teaching. Um, they're, they're false teachers. So they're, they're unbelievers. Um, because it's a very specific term that you see, uh, especially, you know, in Jude and then, uh, in Second Peter, um, where there's a lot of overlap between what, what Peter and Jude were each writing. Um, but the main condition of those is that they're, that they are unbelievers. There's no relationship with Christ. Um, so I'd imagine some of them view themselves as legitimate. Um, maybe if they came up under some heresy and that's what they grew up with. Um, so it's, I guess it's possible that some wouldn't recognize that, that they are wolves. Um, I'd imagine that they would still, even if they didn't realize they're wolves, they'd still have to fight against the conviction of the Holy Spirit um, because the Holy Spirit would absolutely be convicting them of that uh, falsehood. Um, and then and then I think that there are absolutely some that um, know they're wolves and are um, – very, very deceptive and intentional um, about their deception and about their their unbelief and everything. And I think part of what you see is um, the the process, especially in those first in verses five through seven. There's 
there's it seems like a little bit of a, of a progression between um, unbelief, rebellion, and then uh, immorality. You know, so it starts with with unbelief. Um, then uh, when you spend so long in unbelief, you know, not believing uh, Christ, not not believing um, God's revealed word. Um, you begin to rebel, and then rebellion eventually leads to immorality, and then the end is destruction. Um, so, so I think you could see even a pattern there that uh, these the wolves, quote unquote, were um, pulling some of the other or try, attempting to pull other uh, people in the church into this, um, to getting them to doubt, um, you know, God's word. Right? That's a trick as old as the serpent in the garden. Um, you know, so that the unbelief and then getting them to rebel and then ultimately leading them into their own version of uh, their counterfeit faith with a lot of uh, sexual immorality and whatnot. So I think uh, for that first question, I think um, it could be uh, either. I think some wolves may recognize, some wolves do recognize their wolves, and I, but I think it's possible that some don't. Um, and then the second question, how can we keep from becoming wolves? Um and I think, again, using wolf as synonymous with false teacher, um, I think true believers don't need to worry about becoming um, false teachers. Um, the reason a believer – when a believer would need to worry about becoming a false teacher is when they begin to um, doubt God's word. So I think if you're <laughs> – as long as you're remaining true to the scripture, um, you're not going to you know, be- become a-, a false teacher, I think – Christians think the bigger uh, trap for believers, for Christian teachers, is um, not becoming a false teacher, but becoming an unprepared teacher or uh, an immature teacher or an unqualified teacher. Um, Again, those are not false teachers um, because these are believers who are um, putting forth the true gospel. and then ultimately, if a person does apostatize, does turn away from the faith, I think you you know then that's just an indicator that uh, the person was never really a, a sheep to begin with. Um, but again, the primary condition for a wolf is an unbeliever, so believers don't have to worry about becoming unbelievers. Um, but I think believers need to worry about becoming uh, unprepared teachers. Um, so um, that's how I'd answer those two questions. Okay. Good questions. Thank you. I, I think. The disciple Judas may have been a good example of that. I don't think Jude, uh, when he first met Jesus, knew that he was going to betray him. But somewhere there was a turning point eventually where he disagreed and fell into those those pitfalls of believing uh, wrong things and decided to uh, betray Jesus. Yeah, it was you have to imagine that was definitely an attraction. You know, he was definitely pulled toward Jesus. Um, Right, because he was sent out with the other apostles, probably did miracles, like with the other apostles. But um, I think that's it. Once he he saw the money in it or whatever it was, once he believed that whatever lies Satan was feeding him, um, you know, he, whatever path he was headed toward belief, he did a 180. All right, let's get into our discussion questions. Uh, the first one you le- you brought out for us uh, was that Jude presents uh, a kind of wanted poster where he highlights particular features and characteristics of false teachers. 
Uh, would you mind reiterating those characteristics for us? Yeah. So in five through sixteen, I basically um, there there are so many different uh, traits, features, characteristics that Jude lays out, but I kind of tried categorizing them under four headings. So my you know my my big idea was just uh, I just tried to capture it in as few words as possible, just to kind of just grasp that that warning that Jude is giving uh, us in this passage. And essentially, that's what he's saying is beware the wolves, you know, beware the false teachers. Um, keep watch for those wolves who are dre- dressing in sheep's clothing. Um, they're, they're deceptive, they're dangerous, and if you follow them, their way leads to death. Um, and then essentially four distinguishing features of how to know what these wolves look like, right? The way an old wanted poster would have some of the distinguishing features of whoever was wanted. Um, Jude, likewise, uh, paints a bit of a picture of some of the um, the descriptors, the features of these wolves. Um, and um, I think in 5 through 7, what you see is that they're destined for total defeat. And then what you see in 8 through 10 is that they disregard uh, divine authority. Uh, verse 11, that you see that they're morally depraved. And then in the rest, up until verse 16, you, you really see uh, that they're masters of deception, how, how deceptive and, and sneaky they really are. So th- those were my four uh, main points. Now, the second question you said you gave three Old Testament examples in these verses. Uh, each illustrates an aspect of the destiny of the false teachers. Uh, we have the angels that, that fell. Uh, some might call them the Nephilim. Uh, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the Exodus. And I, I do find it interesting that Jude says that it's Jesus that brought them out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is is a very interesting look at it that Jesus we know wasn't in human form but he was there in spirit and as part of the godhead uh and another interesting thing about what happened as they're leaving uh in the years between leaving Egypt and crossing the Jordan uh there were several times that God removed the unfaithful uh one of which was the 40 years of wandering in which that whole generation that that generation that came up out of Egypt we're not allowed to go into the promised land. This is uh, the spies that they sent over. Uh, they came back and said, oh, no, the land is full of, of giants. We can't, surely we can't beat them. Uh, they had a lack of faith. And God was like, you're all going to die and you won't be able to go into the land. So they spent 40 years walking around the desert, burying this generation. And in Deuteronomy 29, uh, it says that I have, Moses says here that I have led you for 40 years in the wilderness. And your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off of your feet. So they walked for 40 years, and their clothes didn't disintegrate out in the sun. Their sandals, no holes in them. So this amazing, the daily food that God was providing for them, this sustenance that God was providing for them, taking care of them for 40 years, just an amazing little detail in there that uh, that I find striking for that 40 years. because. Mm. Anymore today, I can't get a pair of shoes that last more than six months. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. And in point three, you, you ask, uh, where do you see an increasing influence of unbelief, rebellion, and immorality in our culture? And then how can these attitudes creep into the church? You know, there's several points over the last 2,000 years of church history where we've had to stand up and correct the path. Martin Luther saw corruption and false teaching coming from Rome, and his initial reaction was to correct the path of the Catholic Church. And unfortunately, that hap- uh, that didn't happen. There was resistance. They tried to kill him. Um, and so 
the, the next natural action was to reform the church. And that's what many churches now, the Reformation movement, um, most Protestant churches come from that movement there that he started. My particular religious background uh, then finds its roots in what's called the Restoration Movement uh, of the late 18th century. Uh, that's what I grew up with, was uh, Disciples of Christ, Churches of Christ. Um, and I would call this movement one of good intentions, but it came a breeding ground for legalism. Mm. And so you know, when, we, when we see uh, what, what Martin Luther was dealing with, one of them was uh, the buying of, um, now the word is losing me, uh, people would pay their uh, the sins, oh my goodness. Indulgences. Thank you. Thank you. There it is. <laughs> and indulgences. I only had three cups of coffee today. That's okay. Indulgences. The church was sending people from town to town selling indulgences. And what indulgences was <laughs> well, was go, pay me money and you'll pray your I'll pray your family member out of purgatory into heaven. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you pay it, yeah. This was to limit the amount oh, of time man. someone spent uh, in purgatory, which was what Catholics believe is the time between death and entrance into heaven. And it's not a, a very pleasant experience, I don't believe, for what they, they teach. But this was to help shorten their time. Now, at the same time this was going on, um, the Pope was building something in Rome called the Vatican. St. <laughs> Peter's Basilica paying Michelangelo to paint the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Imagine the amount of gold they had to raise, the amount of indulgences that they were trying to raise in order to pay for this. And so those two aren't really connected in history uh, by, by a lot of thoughts, but it's the same time frame. And Martin Luther probably didn't you know, connect those two, but he's like, don't come to my town trying to tell my people, give me money and I pray you into heaven. You're just wanting money to build this, this temple. Yep. That's right. Um, let's look at verses 8 through hmm. 10. Uh, this is question four. What are some of the ways the false teachers disregard divine authority? What will their disregard ultimately result in? Uh, ultimately, a false teacher is presenting a false god, either with their words uh, or themselves. They become a, an idol. So the Bible has been very clear about the destruction of these idols. Now, there's a, a, an extra biblical reference here about the argument over the body of Moses that happens between uh, the archangel Michael and the devil. Uh, this is a discussion happening in the heavenly realms uh, after the events of Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6, where Moses dies. Uh, and what's interesting about Moses' death is that what it records there. In Deuteronomy, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And it says that he buried him, he being God. Now, why would God bury the body of Moses so that no one would know where he, his bones lay? You asking me? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Give me the answer. <laughs> um, I I think um, Elisha is a good example. When Elisha was thrown into the pit when he died, 
someone else came back to life because it was a it was a common burial ground. It was very common for the garments of the saints for the different body parts of the saints still something that happens that some religions do i have a uh i my wife inherited a piece of cloth of a dead saint uh that's an idol uh that was thought to bring healing or to do a specific purpose what saint are we talking about uh i don't remember which saint but i think it, it was it, the purpose was his body would be an idol that it would um the, the bones of the saints were sometimes used for for worship mm-hmm. um, and and creating more problems. So I, I think God bearing Moses uh, was one a, a huge honor, uh, but also that we need to put away the days of Moses. We're moving forward with Joshua. Yeah. So those those are good, right? So why why did God want to bury it? I think you. I don't think I could, I wouldn't have answered it better than that. Um, you know, so you, you're quoting, uh, we're talking about Jude 9 here where, um, so, right, Jude is quoting from an extra biblical, you know, outside uh, outside the Bible source. Um, so scholars think it, it comes from uh, this um, non-canonical book, you know, so it's not in the canon of scripture, not um recognized as divinely inspired um but the a book called the what they either call it the assumption of moses or the testament of moses um you know we don't have um a very accurate account that's been uh, preserved to our day um but the best guesses that the scholars uh, had as to why in the assumption of moses or testament of moses it talks about um you know, Satan um, uh, contending for the the body of Moses. Um, the the two um, reasons given as to why that may have been was um, number one because e- either Satan was claiming the body because um, Moses was a murderer, so he was throwing that card, um, or uh, it was because Satan possibly wanted to use the the body as a relic for idolatry. So that goes to uh, exactly what you were saying there. So, um, yeah. So I, I think that's that that's uh, that's a good point. And um, you know, so I think what you have to do too here is, um, you know, in there. This is not the only time in Scripture when, as far as quoting outside sources, extra biblical sources. Um, you know, in what you see in verse fourteen is Jude. Uh, then also alludes to uh, the book of Enoch. Um, and then you have an example of Paul um, in Acts 17, where he cites some of uh, their, the pagan uh, poets and, and philosophers. Um, and, uh, and I love the way one commentator uh, put it. Um, he, he wrote this. <clears throat> he wrote, we must also recognize that all truth is God's truth wherever it is found, whether it's found on the lips of a pagan or a saint, truth belongs to the Lord. Um, and... Uh, so, so the whole idea there of you know Jude's not saying that any of these books are inspired or anything just because he's quoting from them, um, but he's using them as uh, illustrations of God's truth. Um, so that's an easy way of kind of thinking about um, his use of some of these non-canonical books in quotating and in uh, illustrating his points. It also goes to show that 
you know, Paul and others weren't just reading Old Testament scripture, that they were well-rounded, well-educated people because they had to deal with people from different backgrounds. Right. If you're contending for the faith, you're never contending for the faith in a vacuum. You're contending for the faith in a particular location at a particular time to a particular people with particular worldviews. Therefore, you have to be well-versed in the uh, whatever the current literature and, and language and culture is. Um, if you want to um, contend well. Right. We talked about this with Daniel. Daniel was well-educated in the, the ways of the Babylonians, their, their schooling, and it really did help uh, when he was faced with issues about how to deal with the king and, and how they their politics work. That's right. All right. Uh, question five. Why can we not allow our beliefs to be shaped by our own dreams, visions, instincts, or beliefs, where must we always turn instead for right belief and understanding? That was a. I mean, that's a. That's that's a lob. That's a. Yeah, lob. That's an easy so, underhand. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, so the Bible is always going to be where we go, but let's 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 take this a little bit. In the past episodes, we talked about how God would, in those different times, directly communicate with His people through their dreams. Did it with Joseph, did it with Solomon, Isaiah, and Peter, just to name a few. Now, I want to have a certain level of understanding when I say that God no longer gives direct divine revelation to his children at this point. Because those direct divine revelations, that was setting the tone for for Scripture. And there are times where we get moved by the Spirit to do different things, but it's not direct revelation as what, like, the the Jehovah's Witness. Exactly. It's not direct revelation. And honestly, I think the best place you, you go to that is in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 1, you see, uh, he, he for the first two verses, he says, long ago, at many times, so a bunch of different times, in many ways, so not just one way, but a bunch of different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So right there, the author of Hebrews is saying there are so many different times, so many different ways. Those ways could have been uh, visions, uh, dreams, um, angelic visitations, all that stuff. Um, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, hence the the, the church days, you know, after the, the resurrection until now, uh, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Um, so uh, right that I mean, that's right there. You see, there's no more of this because we are living in these what scripture calls the last days. So in the la- these last days, God no longer speaks. Um, through the prophets um, out, that are outside of his scripture. He speaks to us um, by his son through his word. Question six. What lies concerning God's authority and the Bible's morality do you think are common in today's mindset and that we need to guard against? You know, for, for me, I modern media, I think, paints a caricature of old, grumpy, judgmental, Hateful people whose only joy in life is to force their moral superiority on the masses. But to paraphrase Jesus, what he says in John, but they will know you by your love for one another. Mm. Yep. So it's, yes, our morality is guided by the Bible, but how we approach it 
we should be approaching that morality and how we live around others and how we deal with others the way Jesus did yep. with compassion and love. And when we need to be firm about it, be firm about it. But we, we don't always go for the whip first. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, and the other facet of the question, you know, is the having to do with some of those things that are uh, typical in, in culture as well. Um, you know, concerning God's authority, well, uh, society doesn't believe at large, doesn't believe in the, uh, the inerrancy or the authority of scripture. Um, they, uh, many don't believe even in the existence of God. Um, you have, um, even no longer just atheism, but anti-theism, you know, so atheism says God doesn't exist. Anti-theism said essentially, um, God doesn't exist, but if he did, I would hate him. Um, that's that whole anti-theist movement, um, so lots of lies concerning God's authority. And then the Bible's morality. I mean, obviously, I think the biggest place our brains go is uh, with the, all the sexuality. Um, you know, not not just homosexual sin, but so much uh, heterosexual sin, too. You know, um, um, this just a, a huge rise in um, even in, in things like uh, like swinging uh, and in all of th these uh, you know, you have uh, polygamy, all these corrupt versions of uh, the way God had designed it to be. Um, and that's what sin does. Sin corrupts that which was meant to be good. Um, so I think these are all things that are common uh, in society. So we need to be intentional um, in the church to ensure that um, this we do not allow um, culture's morality or society's understanding of God to inform um, the scriptures or to inform what we do as a church. It's always the other way around. So we just need to be on guard. All right. Question seven. Do you think it is easy or difficult to submit to spiritual authority and why? And in what areas of your life do you tend to reject outside authority? Uh, does doing 85 on the Garden State Parkway count as rejecting authority? Um, I guess ultimately, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, but, I'm, but I'm still waiting for God to save my right foot. So, uh, But it, it's, it is, I think it's hard to submit to any authority when, you, when you've gone through abuse. And a lot of people, uh, whether if it's spiritual, physical, sexual, there's a lot of, because a lot of trust issues. Mm. Um for those that have been abused, uh, not to, to equate them to a stray or a, an animal you pick up from the shelter, but there is a lot of time that is necessary when you bring an animal into your house that, is, that has been abused from, from you, yep. for them to feel comfortable, to feel trusting, to, to believe that you are for their good before the they can feel a part of your family. And that is, the, that is the root problem that a lot of people face in the church is that there's been a lot of uh, abuse of authority and power and there's no trust. And it takes a lot of time to get people to understand that we love them 
and that we we know this is what the Bible says that that this is what's best for them, and we want to help them, not to control them, but to help them understand what the Bible says about submitting to authority. Right, and that's yeah, right, and that would be like you know the um, really for them leading um, those who have been. Uh, victims of such abuse to understand, you know, um, Jesus is um, the one. He he's the champion of those uh, who are um, bruised reeds and mm-hmm. smoldering wicks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, in, in you know, contextually, in, in with Jude, um, you know, I'm I'm my brain was thinking here uh, about those. False teachers who um, were refusing to submit to um, the authority of the apostles or put themselves under the authority of God's word. Uh, in those cases, it's obviously defiance. It's, it's pride. Um, so um, if a reason is um, outside of pride, outside of defiance, that you find it difficult to submit to spiritual authority because of abuse, um, seek help. You know, just whether it's actual counseling help or whether it's, hey, I just need to talk to one of the pastors <laughs> because that might be me. Um, please reach out uh, if that is uh, one of those actual reasons because um, we want to walk you through the gospel and um, apply the gospel to to that area of, of hurt in your life. All right. Question eight. Uh, this is referencing Jude 11. What sins have the false teachers allowed to take root in their hearts as exemplified by Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Uh, and the word that that Jude is using there is woe. Woe to them. Um, not woe as in stop the horses, but <laughs> woe as in uh, you're accursed. Yeah, so right. The same way, you know, you look in Scripture and you see all... Um, we, like the you know the the all the blessings in scripture the benedictions this is um you know that's a benediction of blessing may the lord bless you and keep you this is essentially a, a benediction of curse like woe to them you know you guys are cursed and <laughs> you're right so that's that's exactly what he's saying there getting their attention um uh, and then jude 12 through 16 uh considering all the different imagery that jude is using here in what ways do false teachers and those living uh, false lives uh, pose a danger to the spiritual safety and well-being of other believers. Now, growing up in the Midwest, these verses didn't really do justice for the nautical imagery that Jude is using, (laughs) these hidden reefs and the foam of wild waves of the sea. Uh, We don't get that. Uh, But but here, if you've been out on a boat, you you know, we have sonar. We have different things to help, help protect us from that. And even uh, and even then, you'll still see you'll, you'll still, still see boats. See yeah. um, and you know the the nor'easters that bring in such strong winds, it, it, it's crazy. And uh, one of the other imageries that I did uh, kind of relate well to was the waterless clouds. Mm. And I'm, my wife and I went to Nevada in July, and that was a mistake. Uh, go to go to the desert in July. That's a good good time. <laughs> That'd be fun. They said. Um, and we witnessed rain clouds in the desert. Uh, we did finally experience some rain in the desert, but we saw a lot of clouds that looked like they were raining, 
but they weren't. That was called a, a virga. Now, these are clouds that often appear like you see streaks or shafts of rain uh, that extend down from the clouds, but the water actually evaporates before it gets to the ground. Because Interesting. It, there is, it, it's, it, it evaporates due to the, the, the humidity in the air being so dry that you look like rain is coming. It's coming. It's, it's, the relief is there. And then there's nothing. That's uh, well. That's an empty promise right there. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a, a good illustration. That relief is coming. Yep. How? By the way, I just got to say those oh. two verses, twelve and thirteen. I have to have like become, I think, like two of my favorite verses so far in Jude, simply because I never realized how much imagery is there. It's like Jude just. I, it's I get this picture in my mind of a UFC fight. And it's just one of those times where, um, you know, you have you have the guy on t they call it mounted when uh, if if you're on the bottom, um, you're and you're considered mounted when the your opponents um, or knees are, are are over you and and keeping even maybe even keeping your arms down and so they just tee away until they till the opponent gets knocked out into a referee stoppage. Sorry for the graphic description here, but that's exactly what these verses are like. It's like Jude is just like like pounding away with description after description. It's like wow. like verbal uh <laughs> verbal jujitsu, verbal kickboxing. Um and I, I just so I just got I want to read those. I just hit all those real okay. quick. So he says these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So it, that was like, I mean, there are so many things in there. And and I had fun, too, kind of uh, out, you know, outlining those. Um, you know, so the way I kind of outlined all those, even going all the way up into verse 16, was talking about these decep the deception of these um, these wolves, these false teachers. You know, so you see <laughs> you see that their message is dangerous. Their motives are selfish. Their promises are empty. Their ways are shameful. Their walk is aimless. Their attitudes are thankless. Their words are boastful and their whispers are manipulative. Um, and essentially just, uh, you know, re <laughs> rewriting Recommunicating everything Jude writes there, so I don't know. I think that was masterful. Uh, those two verses that Jude wrote. So that's that's my soapbox. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question ten: How did the true disposition of their hearts show up in their speech and conduct? And verse sixteen uh, calls these people as grumblers, malcontents, following uh, their own sinful desires. And that they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, if I didn't know any better, I'd think I was a, at a Yankees and Red Sox game uh, <laughs> with those kind of crowds. Uh, unfortunately, I find many people that say uh, that they are followers of Christ uh, prone to the same kind of attitudes. You know, growing up in the church and, and, and through the middle years of, of being in unhealthy churches. I've dealt with a lot of people that are grumblers and mm. uh, malcontented and, you know, oh, look at what I've done uh, for, for the church here uh, and, and trying to, to gain favor by, by showing favoritism. So, again, it's those attitudes that they may not know that they're a wolf, but they're definitely acting 
uh, in in those kind of ways. Yeah, and these are, and you know, it's important to recognize Jude's talking here about um, lifestyles. You know, consistent, um, persistently unrepentant um, lifestyles. These are not moments, not seasons. Um, these are lifestyles of those who are grumbling, lifestyle of being malcontent, a lifestyle of um, following your own sinful desires. Because, you know, because elsewhere we know Paul, for example, in Philippians, um, exhorts them uh, to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the word, the word, the Greek word there. I don't even I'm not sure. If, I just remember the Greek word from. Um, from Philippians, I'm, I imagine it's the same in Jude here, but gongusmos, you know, the, the grumbling, um, the the way they did in wandering around in the desert for 40 years uh, in the Old Testament. Um, so obviously, um, we believers are could um, be prone to grumbling, be prone to being uh, discontent, be prone to following their own sinful desires. But um, uh, ultimately, God is uh, going to... Um, that that's there's there's a difference between doing that in a struggle um because you know it's a sin or doing it um um defiantly willfully uh, unrepentantly so two different two big differences there yeah all right and our last two questions are reflection questions in what areas of your life are you in a position to influence people spiritually by the example you set and why should you be aware of the example you set as a Christian to both your fellow believers and to the world? And the other question, how well do you think the example of your life is pointing others to Jesus and the hope of the gospel? So as you, you listen this week and spend time in the Word, uh, take time to reflect on those questions and and see if the image that you are showing the world is that image of Christ. All right, next week, we continue in the book of Jude with uh, Pastor Dave. Yeah, Pastor Dave's going to be um, leading us through uh, Jude 17 to 23. Um, so what Jude did basically in the first four verses, he introduced himself, told us who he was, reminded us of our identity, and, uh, and then he gave us his main command, uh, contend for the faith. Um, he told us the reason why we had to contend for the faith, uh, in verse, uh, in verse four, he says, the reason why you have to contend for the faith is because people crept in unnoticed, these, these wolves, these false teachers. Um, and two of the biggest things they're guilty for, they're perverting the grace of God and they're denying Christ, uh, as, as Lord. Um, and then he says, Hey, by the way, you guys want to know some of the features of these guys. So you know what to look for because they did sneak in unnoticed. So how do we notice them? Well, verses five through 16, we're all about here are all their features. Then verses 17 to 23, which pastor Dave is going to lead us through on Sunday is, um, is all about, um, how we can go about contending for the faith. So, um, we know we need to contend for the faith. We know we uh, now ha have identified the wolves we need to contend against. So now how do we go about contending? And that's going to be verses 17 to 23. Um, so definitely want to uh, tune in for that. And Marcus, whenever we're ready to close here, um, I just tell me because I just wanted to close this okay. with the. Uh, all right. So I'm just going to close this with the doxology um, verses 24 to 25, which we'll get to in two weeks. Um, but I just want to close this uh, with this benediction. Um, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory 
with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week, and thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Hope you all have a blessed week and enjoyed our conversation today.